Welcome to the Pastor's Roundtable Podcast, a podcast where we pull apart and deconstruct the habits, routines, and tactics of the great men and women of faith. Drastically changed my life. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Here is your host, Ryan Latham. Welcome to episode 58 of the podcast. I am super excited to share this conversation with Will Mancini with you. Would you take a moment and like, share, subscribe, even leave a comment? That helps us get these conversations out to more people. And today's conversation is brought to you by the Full Focus Planner. I know I've talked a lot about it on here, but I want to encourage you guys, take a look. Okay, goal setting, annual goals, quarterly goals, daily goals, notes, planning, scheduling, review, all in one place that you can take with you everywhere that you go. Check it out at renewedleadership.org slash planner. That's renewedleadership.org slash planner. They've been giving away tons of free things in 2021, so you won't regret getting your subscription right now. Well, my conversation is with Will Mancini. He is a church consultant and ministry entrepreneur. He's written seven books, Church Unique, Unique, Clarity Spiral, God Dreams, and the one that we're going to be talking about today is called Future Church. Don't we all want to know what's going to happen? I mean, the future of the church, a lot of people have questions. Will's going to break down some of the key elements that we need to focus in on for real church growth. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hey, Will, thanks for jumping on the call with us today. Super excited to connect with you and to share so many of the tools, books, resources, workshops that you provide for individuals and for churches. So, Will, thanks for taking time to jump on the call today. You bet, Ryan. It's great. Great to be here with you. So um, for those that don't know you, uh, would love for you just to kind of give us a little bit about your ministry journey and a little bit about uh, what you're doing now to serve churches. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had three, uh, as a pastor, I had two kind of prior intermingled disciplines. I was getting an engineering degree when I was called to ministry, and I have background in advertising and branding. And so I feel like what I do today is, I, you know, after seminary, after church planning, after, after doing church, uh, you know, doing all the ministries you can do in, in a kind of growing church context, I launched out in 2001 to give the coaching consulting gig a try. And Lord kind of gave me favor and validated that journey. And that's, that led me into eventually, you know, the facilitation, consulting, tool making, you know, kind of leading, designing and leading processes that other people can use uh, uh, is, is the work I do today. And ultimately, I think of it as just helping. I want to help at the end of the day, my life call, uh, you know, my personal mission statement is making a life of more meaningful progress, more accessible to every believer. So I just want people to be able to um, experience not just, you know, it's that not all activity is progress. So I want, and, and not all progress is meaningful. Like people can, you know, kind of think they're scoring well, you know, in life. And, and then, you know, it's kind of that, oh, maybe, maybe my scorecard was, was wrong. And so I want, I just want people to really have that dynamic joy and sense of fruitfulness and energy around 
who they are and what God's calling them to do. Yeah, it's like the old saying, you know, you're you spend your whole life climbing the ladder just to realize that you've been on the long, wrong ladder, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, you've written a few books. And before we even started recording here, you're telling me a little bit about a couple of them. And so uh, one that I'm really excited about, uh, I mean, I, we'll get to the new one, but I want to jump back a little bit back to uh Know, unique and uh, you've got both for churches and kind of like finding helping them find their unique calling their unique um, kind of kind of uh, method of doing things and then also you've got some of the personal stuff too so finding your own personal unique calling and gifting and so I'd love for you just to kind of dive in talk to us a little bit about that um, and just un unpack that a little bit yeah absolutely well I I um... You know, I, I, I'll start kind of, see, you know, in, in sequential order. I mean, I've done most of my work in the last 20 years of consulting. It's been with local churches organizationally. So in 2001, I started. In 2001, Ryan, it's interesting, that would have been the height of the cloning conference attendance in North America. So that, in 2001, you had more pastors going to Saddleback or Willow Creek or North Point. Again, I love these ministries, love those leaders um, in their models. But there was something that was happening at the end, you know, of the 20th century. We were just totally, you know, building our own model by borrowing one or photocopying the vision. And, you know, it's, well, I think it's incredibly valuable to learn. I've been to all those places and learned so much from those leaders and those models. I really was passionate about helping every church, each pastor, you know, have a sense of confidence and breakthrough around what that church's unique disciple making mission and model could look like. And so, uh, you know, that's, I really wanted to walk along with church teams to help them, you know, live into that and experience that. And that's, that's been the, the you know, it's still what I do today. It's my primary, primary work. So, um, and the, and the big learning there was, you know, for me and the, the most joy I get as a consultant is realizing I don't have to bring the answer. The answer's in the room. If God's at work with the people, we, we you know, I, I'm a conversation guide. I'm a conversation engineer. I create room and, and help people discover and collaborate. And, and in that God shows up and just really cool things happen. We say there's no, you can't get breakthrough in the drive-through. So a lot of what I do is just help orchestrate a process where people can think and dream and reflect. And by virtue of that, they come to new clarity. And we say clarity isn't everything, but it changes everything. So that's, that's that piece. And, it was funny, uh, Ryan, I look back and the very first, I can remember the very first day I was facilitated a church team for the first time. And it was, um, you know, it was in September of uh, 2001. I was in San Antonio with a buddy. In fact, you know, my first gig was just asking him if he could buy the flight and, and buy pay, pay my food, you know, right? It was just a buddy deal from a seminary uh, friend. And, uh, and it, afterwards, uh, after we did it, had a great day, you know, thought it was a really, you know, really meaningful time with the team, got a lot done. And we were sitting down having dinner. He said, my buddy Jeff said to me, he said, well, how would you apply what we talked about today in this tool you used to an individual life? And so we start like, so from day one, I was getting questions on, hey, what do you just did? How does that apply individually? So I never, I never stopped thinking about it, but I waited a really long time before I'd bring the toolbox to the world. And in 2014, I took a group of uh, 14 people, um, 10 were pastors, four were kind of high, high capacity lay leaders. 
And we, I took them through a year uh, beta version of what we call today unique, our unique life plan. And it's a gospel-centered life design toolbox. And that's the, the book. So the organizational is church unique, as you said. And then the individual is just unique, Y-O-U-N-I-Q-U-E. It's kind of a life unique idea there. And so both, both, uh, both those uh, kind of give a sense of what you get there. You get a master tool called the vision frame. And then a little visionary plan that pops in the middle of that vision frame. And ultimately, the vision frame helps an individual or an organization articulate what I call the five irreducible questions of clarity. Uh, and, and so both those books do that. The five irreducible questions of clarity are, you know, what ultimately are we supposed to be doing? Why do we do what we do? How do we do what we do? When are we successful? And where is God taking us? And so um, uh, that, that's, that's kind of my, my primary life work is helping an individual or a team answer those questions. That's so good. So we were talking earlier just about some of the pushback to when you start diving into learning about yourself, um, you know, using some of these assessments and tools. But there's some people that just kind of say, you know, you shouldn't be diving into those. Just, just read the Bible, just, just pray and, and those kind of things. So uh, you were saying you got some tools that can even help that too. Yeah, right. When we, we, yeah, and I know that you've run into that obstacle as a trainer yourself and in, in, in many of the tools you, you use. And what we start, we start off early on. And what we do is we, we, we start with this big idea and we challenge people with the notion that you can only give as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know about God. Meaning your, your, your God awareness has a limit if, if, you, if, you, if you choose to minimize you know, self-awareness and that statement to me is so profound. I've not stopped thinking about it for a decade. You can only give as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know about God. And what we do is we create a little, we create a little matrix and we, we talk about you either have high or low God awareness or you have high or low self-awareness. And briefly, you can kind of put the, uh, the kind of the diagonals into view, view. If you have a high self-awareness and a low God awareness, we call that narcissism. You know, it's all about me. You live, you live in a very small world. God is there. You know, it gets selfish because we don't have the, the God likeness happening in our lives. So, and we all know what that looks like. We see that every day. Um, what, what you're talking about is the other quadrant where we have a high God awareness and a low self-awareness. And then that becomes a determinism or a fatalism where it's a false nobility that, um, and, and it's, a, it's really a false sense of spiritual spirituality and spiritual maturity, I believe, because uh, I can't tell you how many people will just say, well, all I need to do is read the Bible and pray. Well, those are essentials, but um, I've, I've seen a lot of emotionally abusive people that can rattle off you know, their memorized Bible verses. Um, I've seen a lot of people who pray, but don't have a lick of self-awareness, you know, that, 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 and, and so these are, these are also spiritual disciplines and part of maturity is that self-awareness. So that, that fatalistic or deterministic, you know, it, it, that, that really backfires, I think, on a life well-lived as well. What we talk about um, with high God awareness and, and high self-awareness, what we call, we call that co-creatorship. And that's an interesting, you know, co-creationism. It's an interesting idea that you have such a high view of God um, that you know he's creator but your self-awareness helps you be more creative. It helps you step into the authority and power that God gives Adam and Eve in Genesis one. 
God wants us to subdue and rule. He wants us to create and multiply. He wants us just, you know, productivity to come out of our lives. And so that ultimate um, uh, awareness of both God and self, you know, to me is a, is a, is a recipe for, for, uh, for doing that. But hey, you're always going to run to people who, um, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a more one-dimensional and easier world to control. If I don't have to grow in self-awareness and I live with that kind of picture of success, it's, it's one-dimensional, it's easy to do. I can be a Bible knowledge junkie and uh, use that as a substitute for real uh, spiritual maturity. So, Will, you've helped us out, the Slingshot Group, uh, with some of the great tools that we offer during our coaching and workshops. And one of those is, is uh, uh, the first 90 days. And um, talking about the first 90 days, why is the first 90 days at a new job so important? Yeah, what's well, a, you know, the science of the first 90 days has been out for, for quite a while, at least 15 years. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it would be acknowledged as there's a sense in which people are always in transition. People feel that way more than ever. But clearly there's a lot of change, a lot of vocational change, seats changing on the bus or, you know, changing your churches, your ministry, what have you. And what uh, the science of, of starting well, it's an art and science, but what, what, what is talked about there is a break-even point. So when an, an individual starts in a new role in an organization, um, Michael Watson, who's the kind of the original thought leader who wrote a book called First 90 Days uh, for Harvard, Harvard Business Review, uh, would talk about this break-even point as you are consuming value in the organization when you first step in. Like you're not actually producing and adding value yet. Naturally, because we, we none of us, because we're learning, we're getting our bearing, you know, we're assessing our context, we're finding our finding our you know legs, if you will, as we get get running in the organization. And so what 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 Watson describes is you know literally, you know, every individual has a different break-even point. Like where you go from consuming value to actually producing value in your new role in the organization. If you think about the vast variety of that, like some people are hitting a break-even point at month you know, four or five, and you're, you're, man, you really become a great producer for the mission, vision, of the organization. Other people, you know, it might be 12 months, 18 months. And when you think of the expense of that, if there are things you can do to hit your break-even point sooner, and this is the, the really the breakthrough idea there is, not only do you not only do you bring value sooner and just you know hey you get a lot more done you actually produce more value five years ten years down the road because of how you started well so that's a really fascinating idea which means having a coach working through a few tools uh, can be a very powerful way to get started in an organization and the you know I think your listeners would appreciate just how intuitive this is. I mean, the, the, the work of understanding starting well, really it, there's a bunch of counterintuitive transition traps you can fall into where we sometimes we try to do too much too soon and we miss learning well. Classic example is uh, one of the things we do in the First Night Toolbox is create a little map of, of relationships in the organization. And we might be trying to press too hard into activity before we build relationships with those above us, those below us, peers alongside of us, uh, even just beginning to understand who, who are my natural allies who just want to help me win? Who are people out there that just kind of are neutral? They're not really care if I'm winning or not. And I just want to be able to, you know, really get to know them, bless them, help them accomplish their, and just kind of have a biblical point of view on this. So it's a really great toolbox. Love uh, how Slingshots brought that 
to uh, the church space and just would, you know, I, I, you know, I have two sons who are in ministry, Ryan, they're both in their twenties. And I like, you know, if they were in a new job, like I would just want this so much for them. It's just really powerful tools to, to maximize that stage of ministry. All right. So you've been called a problem casting and um, trying to solve problems ahead of time, kind of seeing what's coming down the pike. And so in your new book, uh, future church, what is that problem you feel like you're, you're trying to get ahead of and, and try and curve? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. But that idea that problem casting is, is as important as vision casting is really huge. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, really, it's a great little tip to remind, you know, before you read a book, you know, the, uh, the best thing to do is to, to be acquainted, be, be well acquainted with what is the singular problem this book's just trying to solve. So, yeah, the future church book, my most recent book, uh, is trying to solve this problem. I would call it the functional Great Commission or what is the true north of, of a church? Not that we ever intend to do this, but we kind of drift over time. And so we'd say the functional Great Commission in North America is going to all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. So we'd say the problem is the church in North America is dramatically over-programmed and under-discipled. The idea that going to program church um, does not necessarily mean we've made a disciple is the is the problem I'm, I'm trying to address there. So in the book, you talk about upper rooms and lower rooms. You want to yep. kind of unpack that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that's a good, it's a great way to orient to this. To make the quick point of the program church um, not being a full disciple making kind of reality all the time. Of course, God's always at work and disciples are happening in lots of different ways, but I'm talking about it as a systematic way that the church, you know, works and in, in, in a systematic way that the fruitfulness of the church is expressed. So what, what we say in the upper room, lower room, we're trying to answer this question. Why does someone call your church home? Like what connects them emotionally to your church? And we, and so we use a two story house metaphor where we say you either have people in a lower room identity or you have people in an upper room identity. And the lower room identity means that they come into the church and they immediately see four things. They see the place itself. They see the personality of the, of the usually the primary teacher. Of course, it could be any, any roles on a multiple staff situation. They see a program or they, see fr they have friends and people they know. They see people. So it's place, personality, programs, and people. And the big idea of the upper room, lower room tool is that most people in most churches in North America are most connected in the lower room. That is, they're, um, they're emotionally kind of, they, they like their church because they like the building itself. They like the personality of the pastor. They like a program that church offers. Or they like the people. I always qualify this is so important. These are the provisions of the church. I want every church to have a great lower room. I want everyone to love the lower room. Like, that's you know, and you have to start out there. So that's great. The, the problem is if we never over time invite people up a staircase mm. to an upper room where you can get really dynamically, emotionally connected to the bigger purposes of God, like the unique disciple making, you know, mission and vision of that, of that church. And that's, so we basically say everything on the vision frame tool that we talked about really in the first question is what the upper room is about. Like you can love your church's mission. You can love your church's vision. You know, there's values, there's strategy. There's, there's, you know, when we talk about mission measures, that sounds a little bit, 
like something that'd be hard to fall in love with. What we're actually talking about is what kind of disciple is your church designed to produce? And do you have a compelling articulation of that, which is really just really the value proposition of why your church exists? Or what is the life that we have to offer people if we live in Christ together and, and we're a family of God on mission together? What, is, what does that look like? So, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this way maybe for, for people. Well, let me, let me say to the, the audience, it's like it's, it's phenomenal when people get connected to the upper room. It's not a hard thing. It's not an issue of spiritual maturity. Every human being, whether they're lost, saved, or on a continuum of spiritual maturity, everyone wants to go to the upper room. It's just more meaningful. Like it's, just, it's just a better place. So the reason people don't go to the upper room is not because of the problem with the people. It's the fact that the leadership has never slowed down enough mm. to turn the lights on in the upper room and make it crystal clear what we're doing. To say it another way, most leaders don't have a vision frame for their life personally or organizationally. And if you're wondering that, you know, just ask the five irreducible questions of clarity to your top five or 10 people. And, and you know, the average church, you ask five questions, you're, you have to 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers on every question. So, you know, it's impossible to have an upper room dynamic if we, if we can't, our, you know, codify and articulate what, what it is that who we are, what we're called to do. So that's, that's, um, uh, so I, well, I could keep, I could keep rambling up, but I could talk about that forever. So, um, maybe a quick way just to make this a little more concrete. If you were to ask a eight year old boy, what do you want most in life? Every answer will be tangible, right? Electric scooter, Xbox, what have you. If you ask the parent of an eight year old boy, what do you want most for your son? Every answer will be intangible. You know, we want our son to be loved. We want him to know God. We want him to have a self of confidence, you know, self-confidence or these things. And so there, you know, it's just that intuitive, and what happens is we get so, um, we run so fast on the ministry treadmill, we don't slow down to really attend to and connect people to the things that, uh, that matter most. All right, so the title of the book is Future Church, Seven Laws of Real Church Growth. So what does that word real mean? Yeah, real, well, you know, COVID kind of makes this easy to explain. So if, if you have people emotionally connected to the upper room if you have people who are there because they they love the mission of jesus and they they, they they're on they're on board this disciple making mission then when when a COVID, when a pandemic hits and you have to you know close doors for a season then you know the bottom of your church doesn't fall out from underneath you in other words the church wasn't about the gathering it was about it was about people on mission first and foremost we, we just so happen to have a rhythm of gathering you know, at a brick and mortar location. And so, um, you know, the, the, the idea there, and again, this, it's got a little prophetic tone, not sound, not want to sound disrespectful, but I, I would say that everyone has come to the point today where we're okay acknowledging that every church is on a, on a continuum of faking disciples versus making disciples. So you can grow a church in the lower room. That's fake church growth. I mean, that's like, you're growing a program church, but you're not really doing the mission of Jesus. And we just want to acknowledge that that, you know, that can happen and, and it's happening more than we realize. And, um, you know, I think I've never been at a time where more pastors are just name it and say, yeah, we're, we're not going to punch out of the mission here. Let's just do a better job of doing organized disciple making, not doing organized church without disciple making. So. 
So what about like the kids pastor, the youth pastor that's listening right now? What's kind of their take on all of this? You know, how can they kind of bring some of this context even into like some of the 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 lower, you know, the lower levels, you could say, of the ministry, right? They're not the lead pastor. Is there some something, some takeaways yeah. that maybe they can take from this and kind of apply to them, their own ministry? Yeah, I think that's great. That's a great question. Well, it's a- absolutely. So lower room and upper room is happening all the time, everywhere. And for the leader to name that and know that, it gives you an opportunity. What like every pastor, every church leader has a sphere of influence. And so when you're operating with your sphere of influence, um, you know, I, I mean, I just name it. I mean, I've done this for years. I mean, all my early ministry things, I was building it around my personality. I, I got, I got an ego kick out of how much they liked me being at the center of the ministry. And I think, you know, many people have done ministry for 10 or 15 years eventually get to that point where it feels a little hollow if I'm building this thing around, around my personality. And so, you know, I remember, I remember uh, at Clear Creek Community Church when I was a children's pastor there, I remember getting to the point where we would articulate, we would articulate the framework of our children's ministry and in the upper room of our children's ministry. I can remember, for example, um, I can remember Mike who was a plumber and he had this big handlebar mustache, Ryan. And I thought this guy would be great in children's ministry. And so he was sitting in my office and uh, I, had, I, had, I had a couple paragraphs that were my dream for our, our children's ministry. It was just an upper room moment in the recruiting. I said, I said Mike, I said, you know, um, I really believe that what, the way God's working through Clear Creek Community Church, I mean, I, I literally see hundreds of kids you know, cheering and laughing and just having like having such a good time on Sunday. Like what if every Sunday in League City, Texas is like Christmas morning where kids are so excited to come to church. They're bouncing up and down on mom and dad's bed saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I would always open with that. And and there's other things I would share, you know, about the dream and and, you know, like things like, you know, 80% 80% of, of people who come to Christ do so between the ages of four and 14. And, you know, I'm looking at Mike, we're just having a dialogue and I, I'm not talking to him about how many hours it takes. I'm not talking to him about a role description. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm just, I'm just going to the upper room with Mike. And I said, Mike, I don't know if I've ever seen uh, a warmer heart and a more, you know, kind of gifted personality uh, would you help us love on kids every Sunday morning and, and be a part of this dream and the, the impact that we can have in this little corner of the world? And I mean, he signed on. I mean, he, he, you know, it's like he, he's so ready to sign on and we're not signing on to a one every, you know, 25 week rotation. It's like, we need you every week, Mike. We, I mean, this is, this is a high calling. And, and that's just a very practical snapshot of doesn't matter what you're doing. You're either leading from a lower room or you're leading from an upper room. It's mm, good. So seven laws of, of real church growth. You want to give us kind of a snapshot of those? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Well, in the first three laws uh, um, have to do with just kind of the common pattern of how we try to attract people to churches. In the, in the, in the first law is real church growth starts with a culture of mission, not worship. So it's saying that, you know, increasingly so you can't start making disciples just by opening up a big box church and, you know, opening public worship. 
Um, so it, it's about really, you, you may, if you start, if you start, if you plan a church today by opening a church, hoping to get disciples, um, you, you may just reduce, you may be, that may just be reduced to having church services that never get to disciple making. Um, but if you start by planting and working on disciple making, you know, you might eventually get the fruitfulness to start a church service. So that's a little bit, it's a, you know, a little provocative start there, but we say real church growth is powered by the gospel, not relevance. Real church growth is validated by unity, not numbers. That's the law of the first three laws, the law of mission, uh, the law of power and the law of love. Real church growth is validated by unity, not numbers. That one is the one I had to repent of the most in my own life and ministry. So I'll pause there and name the other four real quick. Law three, I realized, Ryan, that if you had given me this two options for every client I consulted in the last 20 years, if you said, Will, you can wave a magic wand and this client church will either have more people next Sunday in worship or will have a more unified congregation next Sunday in worship. I have to confess, I would always rather see more people in worship. My scorecard was what I call plus one, plus one, more, add more, add more, add more. That's how I would validate the mission. And I think over time, what I've realized, and of course, I always want more people, we want that. What I realized is the more important validation of real church growth is equals one, not plus one. That is there a deeper sense of unity. And that's not to the exclusion of bringing more people in. I think that's actually the engine to bring people more in. It's, and that's just a simple, right? Uh, you know, John 17, you know, hey, it's our unity. It's our oneness as brothers and sisters in Jesus that will show the world that God sent his son. And so it's like unity is a billboard of, of, and, and, a, and a wide open door. Uh, to add more numbers in the church. So if you aim at adding numbers, you know, you may not get great unity. If you aim at getting great unity, I believe the scripture teaches, you know, the, the numbers will take care of themselves. So you got those, uh, is that the first? Say, those are the first three. So I'll give, I'll give them, I'll give you this real quick without explanation. Cause I can, I go, the, the fourth <laughs> law, if I'm sitting there in the audience, like I want to hear all seven laws. Like I don't, don't tease me. Like I want to hear them and then I'll evaluate whether I want to check this book out anymore. <laughs> yeah. Four, they'll dive in the book, man. The fourth law is the law of context. We say real church growth is always local, never imported. And so I, I tease out the question. Is it, is it possible for a church to be too big? And then I don't answer that question. I say, it's a bad question. I don't think it's possible for a church to be too big, but I think it's possible for a church to be too non-local. And I explore that. Um, but check this out. What happens is we've been building churches. We start with worship. We're, we're powered by relevance and we're validated by numbers. And what happens is we grow churches that become too non-local. And what happens is we get the, the last four, the last three laws are impossible to get of real church growth. Once you get on that, you know, worship, relevance, numbers, treadmill, you know, it grows to non-local and then you can't do the, the last three laws. Law, law five is um, the law of development. Real church growth is about growing people, not managing programs. And then the law of leadership. Real church growth is led by calling, not celebrity. And I love that law because we talk about how there is more celebrity than we realize in our lower room models and that you can't share celebrity. You can't duplicate celebrity. What is meant to be shared in the kingdom, what is meant to be multiplied in the kingdom is authority, 
having the presence of Jesus and the authority um, for the kingdom to move forward through the proclamation of the message and the presence of the spirit in an individual disciple. And that is an unlimited resource because Jesus is, is manifesting himself in his, in his, in, uh, in believers. So if I'm basing out things off celebrity, it short circuits the transfer of authority and the celebration of every individual's unique calling. The last law is really the, where I've spent most of my life. I call it the, uh, uh, it's the law, it's the law of vision. We say real church growth is energized. That's the key word is energized by shared imagination, not shared preference. And that's where we go back to the upper room, lower room. When you get a bunch of people in a room and we like the place, the personality, the programs, the people, it's very energized. It's a great, you can have a great vibe. And we just want to name that. There's a lot of energy there. But when you build, when you build people, people's energy around the upper room, oh, it's much better. I mean, it's is way, way better. And when 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 people are excited about the gospel dream we have in our lifetime, you don't have time to argue about the color of the carpet. You know, yeah, I mean, the, the, the wear a mask, not wear a mask, I mean, it deeply divides us. But like, what if what if we were so concerned about our dream? That some of those angsty issues that are all around us in 20, you know, we're all around us in 2020. What if, what if they were, what if they were less important and kind of less polarizing? And I see it, see it all the time. So just, just want to encourage, pursue that dream. God had a dream over you when you were born. God has a dream for your church today. Uh, do you know what that dream is? Well, so good. You uh, are a master of tools and always have a toolbox uh, in creating things. And so, um, I want to encourage all of you guys stay close to Will and the project he's doing because they're always coming out with new tools to help you gain clarity for yourself, your church, the mission. Um, so many great things coming. And uh, Will, just thank you so much for joining us. Any just kind of final thought, maybe leave us with a word of encouragement before we wrap up here? Yeah, I do. I, I, do. I want a final thought to pastors that are watching you know in this in this 2021 first and second quarter watching the numbers kind of come back and i want to remind i want to maybe end with a with a perspective on covid that's a little unusual uh in the in the the encouragement i want to give to to pastors is that the future of the church is found in the few and it always was and it always will be if you have less people coming to your church don't be discouraged the future of the church is found in the few. In fact, this principle is so important that in John chapter six, Jesus issues a very hard teaching. He says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And the crowds are cut down almost to zero. Why would Jesus do that? We wouldn't do that right today. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't use hard teaching and send, send people home on Sunday morning. Well, it was such a hard teaching, even his core team was bewildered. Like they didn't actually know what he meant, but they were so desperate. They said, well, Jesus, where else are we going to go? I and mean, we, you know, we're, we'll hang in here. We don't really know what, <laughs> what you just meant. But um, the point is Jesus actually proactively reduced the number of crowds so that he could be about the main priority of investing deeply in a few. And that's why you and I are here today, Ryan, the movement of Christianity came from from God on earth, investing in a few. And that's how the church will always go. So I just want to like, um, this is a pathway to fall in love with ministry again. This is a pathway to really enjoy and confirm your call again. Uh, most pastors on the call, like 
didn't get into it to run program church and have, have and, and so what happens is our success kind of backfires in that original call, that original love of investing deeply in people. And uh, COVID didn't take that away. The future of the church is found in the few. You've got this. So good. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for just the wisdom and uh, the toolboxes. Man, just so many great tools I get to use uh, with you coaching. Uh, I've been so helpful with the people that I've been able to coach. So, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to bringing you another episode here soon. Thanks, guys, for listening. Subscribe, share, like.